Hi, Connor. Welcome to the podcast. Great to have you here. Great to be here as well. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah, I really wanted to have you on because uh, two reasons, men's work and fatherhood. Mm. You literally wrote the book on men's work and um, you're, you've, you've, you're a new father. I don't, you can't say new anymore, can you? How old's, how old's your son now? Uh, he's turning three in March. So it's, he's it, um, a couple years in. I'm not seasoned yet. I'm not a veteran by any means. <laughs> I'm like, you know, I'm like a just entry level, entry level management, basically. <laughs> <laughs> excellent, excellent. Yeah, so I've, I've, I've actually, I've got your book right here, Men's Work. Um, fantastic, fantastic. Uh, account of what what men's work is and what it can do and how it can help people and yeah i just wanted to dive right in and um ask you to maybe introduce yourself and tell some of the guys listening your story and how you got into this work yeah i mean i'm um i always this question is always interesting so i'm like oh man how do i <laughs> how do i summarize all that uh but i mean i think in a in a basic way I, I run a company called man talks we've been around for a decade um you know i i started the initiative to bring men together you know the old saying iron sharpens iron um 10 years ago i started this initiative to bring guys together to help them have more transparent conversations support one another challenge one another push each other forward um, and I did that because in many ways, that's, that's what my life had been lacking when I hit rock bottom. And in the book, I talk about my, my personal story. And, you know, early on in the book, I describe uh, living out of the back of my car at what I called Chateau Walmart, which was basically a Walmart parking lot. And really, I got there because of a number of reasons. One was I hadn't dealt with some of my childhood pain and uh, shit, for lack of a better word, that had caught up to me. Um, <clears throat> I was a chronic liar and I, you know, <clears throat> did everything that I could to be a chameleon, to fit myself into who I thought people wanted me to be. Um, and that meant that I never really got a chance to know who I was and I was constantly shape-shifting to, you know, who does this person need to be and who does this woman need me to be and who does my work environment need mm. to be and who does my family need me to be? And I never really asked the question of who do I actually need myself to be and who do I actually want to be as a man? And so that, that was another piece. I, you know, I was constantly out of integrity. I, I struggled a lot with infidelity, with um, different addictions. Um, pornography was a big one. Um, and so if you had met me before my rock bottom on the outside, it probably would have looked like I was a very, you know, um, somewhat put together guy. I had a great career. I was traveling the world. I had this beautiful, you know, woman that I was dating. I was, you know, I rode motorcycles and went to yoga and, you know, all, all that kind of jazz, but behind the scenes, I, I was really a mess. And I was struggling with different addictions, as I said, and, and was just headed down a path of self-destruction. And all that sort of came to a head when um, my girlfriend at the time found out that I had been cheating um, quite a bit. And I was so ashamed of my actions that I didn't want people to know. And so she moved out. I moved my stuff into storage and I went and lived in the back of my car for a number of weeks just because I didn't want to have to face reality. You know, I was in this place where I was trying to figure out <clears throat> how do I talk my way out of this? How do I get out of this shitstorm that I've created in my life? And that's what I had always done. I'd always tried to maneuver my way through or talk my way out of it or whatever it was. And so um, after a couple of weeks of living in the back of my car, I realized that I needed to try a different path. And so I reached out to a mentor of mine uh, who was much older. He was in his 70s. He's since passed away um, and sort of came clean about what had been going on. And that was a very formative conversation that led to a, a really meaningful two and a half year apprenticeship. And then I connected with some of my buddies, one of them specifically, and I'll pause after this part, <clears throat> but um, I had a very 
real conversation with one of my friends that I'd gone to university with and told him everything that had been going on behind the scenes. And he, you know, he got somewhat emotional and, and thanked me for being honest and transparent and proceeded to tell me that he had tried to take his own life um, a few months before. And it was pretty shocking. It was somewhat devastating. But I think the, the biggest piece was I, I was really surprised because I thought I knew everything about this guy. And I, yeah, I mean, like I knew the type of booze he liked to drink. I knew the type of restaurants he liked to go to, the women he liked to date, the shows he liked to watch. You know, I knew all this sort of like surface level stuff, but I didn't know that he was struggling so much that he had tried to take his own life and mm -hmm. vice versa, right? He didn't know that I was going through hell behind the scenes, that I was battling different addictions. And, and I started to see this in all of my male relationships where there was, there was this depth that me and other guys just never went into. We didn't talk about the realities of our upbringing. We didn't talk about the realities of our relationships. We didn't talk about the real hard truths about our financial situations or how we viewed ourselves. Uh, and so I started to see that in a bunch of my different relationships. And after a few years of apprenticing and, you know, working and developing certain skills, I put on an event and it was the original Mantox event that was, you know, a little over 10 years ago. And so that's, that's kind of like my foray into the, into the work that I now do. Mm, thank you so much, man. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's an interesting there's, there's so many parallels be, between your story and, and my own in terms of this, this lack of authenticity, like not really fully understanding exactly who I was or who I am. And in, in doing that, almost like separating myself or not being my full self, trying to fit in, being this chameleon. And so many men um, that I've worked with, and I'm sure that you've worked with as well, find, find themselves in this position where they are not expressing themselves fully or authentically. There's no true expression. There, there's all this surface level stuff where they're not able to connect to who they truly are because essentially there's, there seems to be a lot of fear, a lot of fear of rejection, abandonment, um, uh, being alone, being seen or feeling not worthy enough or not good enough. And this lack of authenticity doesn't allow us to aligned to, uh, or we don't even know what our true core set of values is or, you know, what maybe our higher purpose is. So we kind of feel, a lot of men feel a little bit lost in this way. So by not accessing this level of authenticity, they sometimes feel like they're just wandering around in the dark. Um, and I just wondered, like, what you feel or what in your experience and all your research in, in writing the book and all the work you've done, has really led men to be separated in this way, separated from each other, but also separated from who they truly are in themselves. Yeah. Well, I think there's a couple yeah. different threads that play into that. And I think it's a very good question. I think it's probably the right question that most of us as men should be asking for, you know, a kind of reckoning with what the hell has happened within male culture and within masculinity. I think there's a few mm -hmm. things that play into it. <clears throat> Number one, I think that we've, you know, if you see masculinity and femininity as an asset, you know, uh, I kind of like financial models a little bit, but if you see it as an asset class, we've devalued the, the value of the currency of masculinity within men in our culture in the West. And so it's become much more socially acceptable for women to be masculine than it is for men to be masculine. Men who are inherently masculine are seen as a threat. Um, men who, who display traits of masculinity um, are seen as a threat, are seen as patriarchal or overly dominant or you know, whatever it is, part of the problem, et cetera, et cetera. We could go down that path indefinitely. Um, and I think part of that is it's, and this is one of the things that I've been talking about more and more is that we've entered into this place in Western culture where it is one of the first times where how we define masculinity isn't being defined by men. It's being largely defined by women. 
and by social culture, which is being dominated right now by women, right? Social culture is very much dominated by, by the feminine and by women right now in the West. And so we've entered in this period mm. where what it looks like to be a man, what it looks like to be acceptable socially as a man, you know, what traits are acceptable to represent masculinity as a man are all being largely curated and defined by women. Now, I think there's a lot of pushback on that. I think that that's starting to change, but I do think that that has um, contributed dramatically to this where we've dislodged our influence as men on defining what masculinity is, on refining what it looks <laughs> like, on starting to, because part of what it means to be a man historically is that we, we collaborate, we come together, we challenge one another, we refine what that masculinity looks like and sounds like, how it's per, portrayed externally, um, its use case within our society and our culture. But we've dislodged that defining and that refining of masculinity from male culture and largely advocated it or advocated it, sorry, to, to women. And we could go mm -hmm. down the path of how that's happened, but I think we'll put that one aside. I think the other big piece is what I've been talking about is the, the epidemic of male vacancy or masculine vacancy. There are so many young men in today's world, unfortunately, who are going to uh, grow up in a house with no father figure, right? So one in four kids one in four, 25% of kids, and a little bit more depending on the state that you're in, in America or Canada, uh, one in four kids are going to be fatherless. So they're going to grow up in a home without a father figure, period. Not just they're not going to grow up without a father. They're going to grow up without a father figure, period. No stepdad, no nothing. <laughs> so you can be a young kid that then enters into the school system. So say you're a boy, you live at home with a single mom, you enter into the school system, you enter into a system where it is predominantly women, right? It's like 80%, depending on the grade that you're in, 80% female teachers. So then you go into an education system where you're not learning from men. You don't have male role models. If you don't play sports, you're likely not going to have a male coach. You exit school having not really ever had any type of male influence. And then you go into, let's say, a higher education system like a university or college where again, there is a vacancy of men, right? Right now in, in North America, there is almost a two to one ratio of women graduating to men. There are almost twice as many women graduating from college than there are as men. And the same thing is starting to happen with professors, right? Uh, largely, uh, when you look at the academic institutions, they are becoming more and more uh, ruled or dominated or uh, overrun with women and men are increasingly vacating the premises <laughs> for lack of a better term yeah. so you can be so if you're a young man and you grow up in that circumstance you don't really ever see what it's like to be a man you don't ever really have the modeling that is uh showcasing what it looks like to be a man who deals with different challenges to you know, what it looks like to be a man who is in relationship with women, what it looks like to be a man who's angry and how he deals with that anger, what it looks like to be a man who's hurt and how he deals with his own pain mm -hmm. and how he deals with his own hurt and how he deals with hardship. So you can largely go through life. And this is what's happening for a lot of young men is that there's this vacancy of masculinity. There's just this complete vacuum. And so there, there's no reference point. And a big part of how we step into our masculinity and how we step into manhood is through the proxy of older men, right? There's sort of this handing down. And this is why throughout history, uh, young boys have traditionally crossed a threshold of initiation into manhood. And that initiation is often done by much older men in the community that have also gone through that initiatory process. So, there, there's many mm -hmm. other pieces that I think play into it. I think that those are two of the really big pieces, you know, where we're devaluing masculinity and then there's just this vacancy where a lot of men, a lot of young men, a lot of men in our generation, a lot of men that are in the, you know, the generations up and coming, they just don't have a role model to go by or the role models that they see on TV are like, you know, the dopey Homer Simpson 
you know, Peter Griffin style characters yeah. that are just complete shitheads, right? Like they're not, they're not people that you want to emulate. They're not men that you want to have as a role model. And so I, I think that this is massively to the detriment. I think the last thing I just throw in real quick is I think that some of our systems aren't necessarily set up for boys to, to really succeed. You know, if you look at the neurological development of a boy versus a girl, generally speaking on average, a young boy's prefrontal cortex is going to develop slower than a young girl's. And so that boy's social skills, his cognitive skills, his language abilities, those are all going to develop slower than a young girl's. And so the way that our system is set up is a lot of young boys are going into the education system and the education system is not necessarily designed, even though you know, it was designed by men hundreds and hundreds of years ago. It's not necessarily designed for young boys to flourish, right? Because we need activity. We need to get up. We need to move our bodies. Um, sitting and regurgitating and memorizing is not necessarily what most young boys are, are designed for. And generally speaking, a lot of young boys are going into the education system too early. And so for a lot of young boys, that's incredibly infuriating, right? Because they're starting to see, you know, a lot of the girls are just outpacing them in grade one and two and three and four. And then they get very discouraged and they can't sit still. And, you know, they're diagnosed with ADHD and all of a sudden they're on medication, right? And so I think there's a bunch of different factors, but hopefully those ones give us a good launching point. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And it's so interesting because you see this lack of modeling. It's not so, not even so much role modeling, just lack of modeling on, on what masculinity looks like in our modern culture. And, you know, this system that you speak of that was invented by men hundreds of years ago, you know, doesn't serve us. It's self-perpetuating. It's almost the, you know, the fact that the patriarchy hits men first. You know, we, we did ourselves a disservice and we see a lot of men who are in power or in positions of power, not in their power. Mm -hmm. So they have positions of power, but they're not using it well. They're not, as you would put it, self-led men. They're not, they don't know themselves. You know, they're, they're not integrous. They're not largely um, authentic. And, you know, you see this, this kind of swing, this pendulum swing of, um, the kind of the fe feminine influence in, in masculine culture. And you, you speak about how that kind of like robs men of the masculine traits that, that they have, or like in some ways like vilifies or demonizes them in, 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 in different ways and asks us or asks of us to behave in, in more feminine ways. And it devalues the, the masculine traits that we have and that we could have and that we could exercise in culture. And as this pendulum is swung, you know, we speak. Um, uh, you look at the work by Warren Farrell and his book, The Boy Crisis. You know, all of the investment that has been put into initiatives and programs and projects for women and girls, versus the amount of investment in the same initiatives, projects, and programs for men and boys, it's massively outweighed in in favor of girls. So, we've actually swung the pendulum so far and looked back and realized, oh no, like we actually did forget about men. There are men in positions of power, but we forgot about the next wave. We forgot about the next wave of men, the modern man. Like, how do we look after them now when all of this has swung so far? And you talk about um, rites of passage there, like the boy to man, like there's no role model. We've left that kind of farm community and we went into the factory and we became hyper-individualized and hyper-competitive and separated ourselves because any, any form of vulnerability or... Um, authenticity might put us at risk with other men because we're competing for positions now. We're competing for money. Like I want that promotion. So I'm not going to tell you this because you might tell somebody else, which might mean I won't get that job. So I'm going to keep it, keep it in and suppress it and, you know, stack that down. And then you, you send that over time. You can, you continue that over time and you've got, you know, two, three generations of men who just don't talk. So how, how, where is this modeling of modern masculinity where men are able to access that, that true raw masculinity, where we're able to support each other, where we're able to engage in healthy conflict, when we're able to, you know, question, challenge, test each other in, in healthy ways so that we can be the best for that, 
for that element of our community to serve the greater community. Mm. Because when we worked on the farm, we, you know, if one person wasn't working well, the rest of them would gather around like brothers, uncles, fathers, grandfathers, and support that person to be the best version of themselves so they could work well in amongst this team that then feeds the community, literally. And we've lost that, I believe. And you speak a lot about through all of your work about the self-led man, somebody who integrates all this, these parts of himself. And I just wonder, like, how do we bring that back into our culture? How do we bring that back into our culture? Because it's hard to do on your own. We, we, we see it. There's you know, studies showing that one in, only one in five men actually talk to friends about how they're truly feeling. You talked about it in your book when you had that conversation with your friend and both of you were like, oh my God, me too. <laughs> I was wondering about thinking I was the only one and keeping it all to myself. But the second I gave you that permission, you opened up as well. And now we're connecting over this thing. We know each other a little bit better. We can go deep on these things and we can help each other heal. We don't have that largely in, in masculine culture. So how do we bring that back? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think one is there has to be some type of remembrance of the importance of male collaboration. You know, I think what what's happened is that there's there's been a, a sort of like a demonization of male groups. You know, it's like men gathering is, is, has suddenly turned into this very toxic, dangerous thing. You know, there's, I remember when I first, there's a gaggle of men over there, be careful. That's right. That's right. <laughs> uh, like, I remember when I first started Man Talks, the vitriol and the hate that I got uh, for putting on an event geared towards women. And I started in Vancouver, Canada. And the funny thing was, is that you could go on meetup. All right, meetup.com, which is just like a website where you can go and see meetup groups, right? Where, where people are just, you know, meeting up around business or finance or whatever it is. You could go on meetup and you could see literally thousands of meetups for women only groups, thousands of them. Like you could just type in women and it would be like women in business and women in science and women in tech and women, blah, blah, blah. And it was like all of these meetups for women. And there wasn't one for men at all. Like I'm, I, re I remember having my first event. I was like, there isn't one event in this entire city that is geared towards men like that's fucking insane you know and so i think what we start to do and this is this is starting to happen in this whatever we want to call it right there was sort of like the men's movement with robert bly back in the 70s and 80s this is sort of like a second wave men's movement that's happening now with a lot of guys starting to reconnect to the value of male collaboration of getting together with other men and you know supporting one another through the challenges of relationship or fatherhood or divorce or the loss of a parent or you know being diagnosed with prostate cancer like whatever the hell it is but we have to get uncomfortable with entering back into real life circles and situations with other men where the primary focus is some type of collaborative effort. And the reason for that is, is pretty simple, is that, yes, you need to be able to lead yourself. You need to be able to lead yourself and your finances and your health and all those types of things. And you are going to be exponentially more effective at that if you have men walking by your side, challenging you, calling you forward, supporting you, checking in on you, holding you accountable, all of those things are going to support in your capacity to lead yourself in your life. And so there's sort of this strange inverse where we, where we need to put ourselves into community to actually get some of the support that we need in order to thrive individually. And what a lot of men have done for a long time is just try and go it alone. You know, it's like, I'm going to move out into the woods. I'm going to build myself a shack and I'm going to figure out, you know, everything on my own. And for the majority of men, that just doesn't work. It doesn't work for them. So that's, that's a big part of it, I think, is, is reigniting male community and male collaboration to solve problems, whether it's in our individual life or our businesses or, or whatever it may be. And then secondly is looking at where we are lacking in certain masculine traits on an individual level. And for a lot of men, this is where the challenge really starts to set in because it, it's hard to, it's hard to take a good, honest look at yourself. And so I like this idea of an honest audit, 
I think I wrote about this in the book. One of the exercises that I gave men was to like do an honest audit of your life. You know, treat treat yourself for a day like you're the IRS of your life and you're just going to get up in your own business and take a look at how am I actually showing up in my relationship, in my finances, in my health and be a bit ruthless with it. You know, get really honest with where am I just screwing around? Where could I actually be more effective? Uh, what skills do I need to actually develop? Because masculinity is in many ways associated with competency. And so when we don't feel competent as men, we don't generally feel masculine. And there's more to it than just that, right? Like masculinity is not just how competent you are, but that's a big part of it. And so for a lot of men, what they're actually needing to look at in terms of their own sense of self-leadership is how competent are you? Maybe the challenges that are happening in your marriage or your relationship with your girlfriend are happening because you're not very competent at communication. You just suck at communicating effectively with your partner, what's going on inside of you, what you want, um, creating direction, communicating your desire, or maybe you're not very competent at listening to her and what she's saying about how she feels and the challenges in the relationship. So we have to be willing to take a step back and look at what, what competencies do I actually need to develop in my life? Am I shit with discipline? Like that was a big one for me. I was a very undisciplined man. I lacked impulse control. You know, anytime that I wanted to jerk off and go watch porn, that would happen, right? There was like, there was a no, no button <laughs> inside of me. And so I had to develop a, a deeper competency of discipline so that when these impulses or these urges would arise, right? Go drink your face off, go light a joint, go watch porn, that I actually had some ability to say, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go do this instead. I'm going to sit and meditate. I'm going to do breath work. I'm going to go do yoga. I'm going to go work out, right? I'm going to go work on my business. And that takes time. So those are some of the things that I think we as men can really focus in on. And it's what's going to produce results. And I think it's one of the challenges that a lot of men experience when they go into a therapeutic setting or a therapeutic environment is that therapy, the, like the therapeutic industrial complex is very much, again, there's another space dominated by women, right? It's like, if you want to go see a therapist or a psychologist, it's like 80% women, right? And so a lot of the problems that men often bring into therapy are treated in a very feminine oriented way. Talk about how you feel, validate what you feel. That's good. That is a part of the process, right? If you've lost a parent or your wife has told you that she wants a divorce, talking about how you feel is a very important part of the equation. But there also might be things where you need to develop some competency in order to actually alleviate the shit that you're feeling internally, right? For example, if you're a man that struggles with high levels of anxiety and you're dealing with anxiety, um, if that's an ongoing situation where you're feeling anxious all the time and no one's taught you how to actually cope with that anxiety and develop a skill set to deal with it, then it's going to be something that's constantly overrunning you. So hopefully those are some things that just give some perspective. When a lot of men go into therapy, um, it's a very female oriented and dominated space as well. And so what ends up happening is that there's a huge focus in on how are you feeling versus do you <laughs> actually need to develop some level of competency and efficiency in some of the areas that you're struggling with? Yeah. And it kind of leads us back to almost like a, what happens a lot of the time I, I, I see, because this is again, closely linked to my own story. I was in counseling therapy and nothing was really helping. It was keeping me in my head and actually added to the stigma because it was a female counselor, because it was a female therapist. And, you know, I, I, I still felt a level of shame around the challenges and difficulties I was facing and what I was feeling. And I didn't feel like I could really bring it outside of that room and talk to any male friends or, uh, about it because there was almost this, and I want to get to this later around, you know, your, your legacy part of the book around the victim. Like I was still you know, playing a victim. I was still um, feeling a sense of, of weakness and seeking pity 
Um, and it, it ended up becoming almost like a mother, a mothering energy um, that I was looking for. And that can often be the case when when we're feeling bad. And you know, tell me your experience of this in, in the men that you work with, that sometimes when men lack this community that we're talking about, this uh, group of men that can um, provide accountability and support them to to address competence, competency levels. When we don't have that as men, who's the person we often go to to tell our problems to? Say our partner. And our partner doesn't want to hear that. They, 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 it's, the, it's almost like the lie that we've been told in modern culture that um, you know men just need to be more vulnerable. We just need to see more vulnerability for men without any true modeling of how that's done in a constructive way. So what happens is we kind of spill out on the people closest to us. And oftentimes, because only one in five men actually talk to their male friends, the person they talk to is their wife or spouse or partner. And they're often not best placed to hold that because it changes the dynamic of the relationship and adds shame on top of it. And we feel even more disconnected, which then compounds the issue and makes it worse from us and worse for us. And we change this 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 relationship into you know a, a co-relation or um, a supportive relationship into mother son dynamic and it's this this lie that we've been told that men oh sorry women want vulnerable men it's like they do just not with them <laughs> they want them to be vulnerable know exactly what they need to do and then go away and do it with friends a, a strong community of men come back and, and serve in a way so. Yeah, it's this, this desperate need for community so that we can support competency levels in work, um, ability to show up and support um, our, our, our friends, our brothers, our families, and also sustain our relationships. I think that's really, really important. Yeah, I mean, I wrote, I wrote a chapter in the book called The Myth of Male Vulnerability. And in it, I, I broke down how men are really put in this double bind in our culture. And the, the double bind is that culture and society are telling men that if you have a problem, vulnerability is the solution, right? No matter what the problem is, like the problem that all men are facing is that they need to just be more vulnerable and that'll fix their relationships and their financial situation and how they feel and all that other kind of stuff. And what men experience on the other side is that all men know to a certain degree, whether it's conscious or unconscious, that they take a very big risk in being vulnerable. All men know this. And, and a lot of men have seen this uh, online, you know, where maybe a man opens up and shares something and he gets shamed for it by women or he gets shamed for it by men. Um, or, you know, we talk about how men are falling behind in our culture and that's seen as anti-feminine, you know, or it's shut down. It's like men just need to pick up, you know, pick themselves up by their bootstraps and figure it out. It's like less men are going to college. Well, that's men's fault, right? That's the patriarchy's fault. That's what men get, right? Less men are in the workforce. Well, that's men's fault, right? And so there's, as when men do start to talk about their issues and open up, I think it's very confronting a lot of the times for everybody, but for women, especially, I think that when men actually are vulnerable, it's very confronting because for, well, for many reasons, but for one, it's foreign for a lot of women, they haven't seen it. And, and two, for some women, it's disorienting, right? It's like, oh, you're opening up to me. Do you want me to solve your problem? Do you want me to fix this for you? What does that mean about our relationship? Does that mean that you're not capable of holding space for me or helping me or hearing me or understanding me? And so it's this, it's this dynamic where men are told constantly be more vulnerable, but in reality, what they're often, what is actually wanted from men and what a lot of women will actually, are actually saying is, I want you to tell me what you're feeling. I want, I want to know that you know, as a man, what you're feeling, and I want you to be able to communicate that, but I also want you to be able to communicate that you have it covered. That's what women are actually saying for the most part. It's not, it's not every single woman, but for the most part, that's what women are saying. I want you to communicate that you know what you're feeling mm -hmm. and that you have a pro that you have a sort of solution or a plan in place to help you deal with what's dealing with what's going on. And it's not and that they so, don't care. 
It's not that they don't That's care right. what's going on with you. It's just that they want to know that you don't depend on them. You're not dependent right. on them to solve it. Right. And this, you know, there's a lot of conversation and, you know, Red Pill and MGTOW and stuff like that about high value men. And there's a lot of debate about what that actually looks like and yada, yada, yada. Um, I think some of it's good. I think some of it's off. But one of the things that I don't get, think gets talked about enough is that from a woman's perspective, a high value man is one of the things that can create the appearance or the reality of a very high value man is a man who has a very strong male cohort that supports him. That to a woman is incredibly appealing. Mm -hmm. It's attractive. And <clears throat> I, I heard um, uh, this psychologist, Sadia Khan, I think is her name. And she said something really interesting that I, I loved. She said, women want a man that they cannot manipulate. Women want a man that they cannot manipulate. Mm -hmm. And when you are a man that has really good men in your life, women take that as a sign that it's going to be much harder to manipulate you and it's going to be much easier to respect you. And in general, women want to be with a man, date a man, sleep with a man, marry a man that they respect. And so the company that you keep with the men that are around you, and a lot of guys have probably experienced this, right? Like if you are friends with a couple of shitheads that are constantly like getting arrested and getting drunk on the weekends and, you know, puking in the car and that kind of bullshit, your, your girlfriend or your wife probably doesn't like those guys, right? And it's, a, it's probably a point of contention between you and her. Yeah. But if you have men who are successful, who are grounded, if you have men in your life who are holding you accountable, um, that you have a solid relationship with, she probably appreciates that because she knows that they have your back. And as an extension, she knows that they have the back of your relationship. Mm -hmm. And that's very, very valuable to a woman. So I know that's sort of a, a side tangent, um, but hopefully that answers some of the yeah, questions. Yeah, super important. Essentially like a, a sense of sovereignty, like you... You love your partner, but you don't necessarily need them. And they don't want to be needed. They they want to know that you have them and that you're together with them, but you're not dependent on them. You're sovereign. You can actually deal with it yourself. I think that's the, and that comes back yes. to the competency. Like we want men to have men around them who challenge their competency levels. And we should be open to that challenge as men and you know, honest about it and realize, okay, yeah, I'm actually not good in this area. I need to do some work about it. And they see this as you know, men supporting men, you said earlier, like iron sharpens iron, like that, that's what women want to see. Yeah, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. And I think in what we undervalue oftentimes in relationship is, is choice. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we get into this game of, of control and, you know, trying to coerce people into things. And there's like subtle manipulations that show up in relationships because we don't actually want to say what we want or be direct or assertive about what we want. And yet that is almost always the pathway of transparency, right? The more direct you can be in a relationship, mm -hmm. the quicker you're going to find out whether or not that individual or that relationship is right for you because you will very quickly learn where that other person stands uh, based on their response and based on their follow-up actions. So yeah, absolutely. Um, I think we're going to talk about the victim at some point, but yeah. I don't know if there's anything else that you want to get into <laughs> it, on this it, yeah, that, kind of, that kind of ties into it. <laughs> it, leads, it leads in nicely. Yeah. Cause I was going to ask around the formation of the book because I love alliteration. <laughs> so you're, 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 you know, you're, the way you split the book up, the, the chapters and uh, the, the core headings of lead, liberate and legacy, like really stood out to me. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. You know, leads, you know, being the self-led man, like working through elements of your shadow and elements of yourself that you've repressed, liberate, liberating yourself in love. And I would have loved, I don't think we're going to have time today to go into the, <laughs> the, devastating effect of porn in our culture because it's something I talk about a lot with the men that come to my groups and how we need to move away from it but perhaps another time and um, what I want to move on to is this idea of legacy and and working with things like victimhood and our relationship to anger as men and how that's perceived in 
masculine culture and just general society. Yeah, it's a big, uh, it's a big one. I agree. I would love to have to, a conversation with you at some point about pornography and especially the coming AI wave because that is uh, fascinating. <laughs> I, I actually just created last year. I launched a porn detox program for for guys who wanted to quit porn, mm -hmm. and we've started to advertise and market it on porn websites, which has been really fun and really interesting. Brilliant! <laughs> that is genius. So just like, just like we're gonna, just gonna go where like because I was like, what? Like when I was hooked on porn, what did I actually need? And it's like I actually needed some. Mm. motherfucker it'll just like you know some part I'm of your conscience looking off. for this I yeah <laughs> yeah you know like you're you like open up the porn browser and you open up the first video and there's the advertisement for like yeah. want to stop watching porn it's like yeah fuck yeah i do yeah yeah um, i shouldn't be here Dad. but <laughs> that's right it's like ah oh, god damn it they got me um but yeah i mean victimhood is an interesting one and it's an interesting one because no man wants to admit that he's acting like a victim, no man. And so it is one of the hardest things and all the work that I've done with men, I've worked with tens of thousands of men all over the world in the last decade, been very fortunate to, you know, work with guys in every walk of life. It's, it's really been a beautiful journey. Um, and one of the things that I've really come to learn is that one of the hardest things to get a man to see is where he is acting like and being the victim. Mm -hmm. not the, and that's different from where he was actually victimized because the challenge that a lot of men have is that at some point in their life, they were truly the victim. They were sexually abused. Mm -hmm. They were physically abused. They were verbally or emotionally abused. They were neglected. They were abandoned. They were taken advantage of. They were betrayed deeply and they were in the position of the victim. And Often what's, what's happened when those men were maybe boys or teenagers and they were victimized is that they approached dealing with that by going inside, by not disclosing what happened, by hiding that they were indeed a victim of something. Mm -hmm. And this is very common in, in masculine and male culture. And so how we respond to victimhood oftentimes is to hide it. And so there's two things that we really, that I think all men would benefit from understanding about the victim. Number one is we learn how to deal with the archetype of the victim by sort of confessing or admitting where we actually were a victim in the past and what we were a victim of and learning to express what actually needed to be expressed at that time, whether it was anger, whether it was grief, whether it was sadness, whatever it is, but learning to work with the pain of having been put in that position as a child, as a young man, et cetera. So that's part one. Part two is being able to recognize where we are playing the victim in our current life. And that might be in your health, that might be in your relationship. What I see for a lot of men is they feel, um, I'm not, I've been trying to think in the background of this conversation of like how to approach this one, but for a lot of guys, they act like a victim in their relationship sexually. And what I mean by that is that it's very common for a man who doesn't feel like sex is happening enough. Uh, frequently or the way that he wants to move into this victim orientation where he starts to complain, where he starts to criticize, where he becomes, you know, judgmental and, and pitiful. And he starts to act in this way to try and change the circumstances and the, 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 the dynamic of his relationship. But what ends up happening is that it reaffirms for his partner that she doesn't want to engage with him because it's not attractive when a man is acting from that place. And for a man, it feels incredibly disempowering, incredibly disempowering. And so we have to start to look at where am I actually playing the victim? Why am I playing a victim in this area of my life? What do I feel like I'm a victim to? And, you know, I'm a big believer and proponent of, of Carl Jung, who is very famous uh, psychologist and psychiatrist. And he said the first step in any healing journey 
is the step of confession, the step of admission. And so we have to be able to either bring forward to the men in our life, right? If you're in a men's group, if you have a coach or, you know, a counselor or a therapist to be able to bring that forward and just say like, you know what? I think I'm playing a victim in my relationship in this way, or I think I'm, I'm acting like a victim in my health or in my finances in this way. And to start to just admit that that's actually happening. That is the one of the biggest liberating steps that a man can take is admitting that he's caught on to the game of how the victim is showing up in his life. Mm-hmm. And the reason why that's important, and I'll say this one piece and I'll hand it back over to you because I can see that you might have a good question on this front, is <laughs> ties back into initiation. And there's a man named Richard Rohr who's a brilliant Franciscan monk. And he said, unless a man goes on a journey of initiation, on a journey of powerlessness, he will always abuse power. Mm -hmm. And so what happens for a lot of us as men is that we create in our lives, unless we've gone through an initiation process to reconcile with our power, to understand what real powerlessness feels like, we create these little many versions of powerlessness in our life. Oh, I'm powerlessness. I'm powerless to change what's happening with my wife. She just always, you know, does this, or she's always criticizing me that way, or she never wants to have sex with me. And so we create this powerless dynamic where we feel helpless and we feel powerless and we create these little tiny versions of an attempted initiation process to try and initiate us into our power to try and initiate us into an empowered state rather than saying, okay, where have I actually been powerless in the past? Because that powerlessness is where we were the victim, right? That is the the circumstances where we probably were victimized. And it's very common that when we don't deal with what happened in the past, it will repeat itself in the present moment and in the future, and we'll call it fate, right? We'll call it, (laughs) we'll call it our lives, right? Our circumstances. So, yeah. It's interesting because it's almost like the avoidance, like paradoxically, it's the avoidance of the, the kind of mythological feminine represented, like shadow world. We avoid going into the shadow and we focus on the light, like the masculine go, I'm going to achieve, I'm going to fix, I'm going to solve, I'm going to do this. But it comes from the wrong place because we're not integrating those parts of ourselves that we've repressed, you know, suppressed, avoided. Mm-hmm. feel ashamed of and oftentimes you know when you were speaking the, the question that was coming up in my mind or the thought that was coming up in my mind was you know when these things happen to us as you know children or adolescents they oftentimes weren't our choice we didn't have a choice in what happened to us so we were powerless in that moment but almost in a in not in a, essentially an abusive way, but we didn't have any power to make that choice in that moment. So when we move to adulthood and we we have those kind of um, like markers of, let's call it trauma or um, negative experiences, we make a different choice because we, we have the power to make a choice in, in adulthood, but it's often the wrong choice. And it's coming from that place in us that when that thing happened to us, we didn't evolve past it. A lot of psychotherapy mm-hmm. models go over this. Like when something happens to us, that part of our psyche stays locked at that at that point in, in our development. And then we're trying to make a different choice in adulthood based off of this immature, unevolved version of our part of our psyche. And that's where we feel like this misalignment where we're just, we're not getting it. We're not getting it. We end up acting from this immature, you know, petulant, place where we're complaining or blaming and we're not actually we're actually choosing the state that we're in but it's we're going the wrong way about it would you agree with that a hundred percent yeah yeah you're you're spot on right like in if so a big um a big proponent of my work is developmental psychology and attachment Mm -hmm. and in developmental psychology a part of what happens with trauma as you're saying is that we we stop developing in that one area where our trauma exists it creates what's called an impasse Mm. and so if you are three and you have something happen you know your parents get divorced or you're five and you know you witness your mom being abused it creates some type of developmental impasse 
And that impasse, that trauma is almost always marked by a lack of choice. Mm -hmm. I can't choose anything else. I feel stuck, you know? And so a good way to go about looking at, because sometimes it's hard to see where we feel like the victim in our relationship or our life. And a good way to start to see that is where do I feel like I don't have choice? Where do I feel like I can't choose? And that might be at work or in your health or your relationship or your finances or in your sex life. But start to see, start to ask the question, do some journaling around it. Where do I feel like I don't have choice in my life? And you'll probably start to see the roots of your childhood pain. You'll start to see the roots of what happened to you in childhood that's showing up in your adult life. Mm -hmm. And so to tie that into legacy, which is the very end, you know, I, I think the, the one-liner that I wrote down to open that section was legacy is the ego's attempt to live forever. And when we're not careful, we as men can get very fixated on the externalization of, I need to build something big. I need to make so much money. And, and that way it'll ensure that I live on, that I leave a legacy. And it's almost never that, right? Because when you really hear, when you really read the biographies of great men throughout history, part of it's about what they've done, for sure. There's no negating that. But a massive, massive part of it, it's probably an, the 80-20 rule I think applies here. I would say that 20% of it is about what they've done and 80% of it is about who they actually were hmm. that allowed them to do what they did. And and we as you know, we as modern men, we oftentimes get lost trying to figure out and, and get fixated on what we're doing, what we're building, what we're creating, instead of looking at who am I? Who actually am I? How do I operate? Am I aligned with my values and my morals and my ethics? Or am I offloading those to my partner, my wife, my girlfriend, society, culture? You know, how do I operate on a daily basis when no one's looking? Am I somebody that I'm proud of? Am I somebody that I respect? And to start to live and operate in a way to shift your North Star towards I am going to become and build myself into somebody that I can actually respect and appreciate and have gratitude for. Mm -hmm. That is a legacy that will permeate every interaction, every relationship that you ever have, regardless of what you do. And it will cement a legacy that is potent in a very different type of way than what a lot of men are focused in on when they look at, you know, people like Andrew Tate that are like Bugattis and, you know, yeah. women and all that kind of stuff. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I'm not even making a comment on Andrew Tate. It's just more of like the image that he sometimes portrays, right? Yeah. That there's like a legacy of, you know, dozens of supercars and Hungarian models, you know? So, oh, <laughs> so I give, think give that me, give that's, me Marcus Aurelius. that's the legacy. <laughs> right, 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 right. Like, I think that that's the legacy that we as men revere, right? We revere the Marcus Aureliuses. And I, I pray to God every single day that I can be that type of man for my son, you know, that that's the legacy that I can embed in his life, that I'm someone who had self-respect and self-leadership and compassion and empathy for him, but also for myself. And, and that when I die, he, he will be able to say and talk about who I actually was, not mm -hmm. just what I did. I'll do some great stuff and I have already done some great stuff, but who I actually was, because that's what's, that's what really gets talked about at the funeral. That's what really gets talked about after we pass away. Mm -hmm. So that's yeah. beautiful, man. It segues beautifully into the, the last question I had, because obviously the, uh, the podcast is called Forging Fathers. So we we have a, an audience of fathers listening and you've been doing this work for about 10 years now and your son is three. So I was wondering, you know, what changed for you, you know, the importance of your work and all the stuff that you've spoken about today and in your book, I would encourage everybody to go and buy Men's Work by Connor Bean. It's an amazing book. And everything you've spoken about with so much passion, I was wondering what, if anything, changed in, in the direction of your work or how you felt about your work when you became a father? 
Oh, I feel like a lot changed. <laughs> a lot changed. You know, I, um, I had a lot of reflective moments before my son was born. And, you know, there was a good amount of fear that I was going to lose some of the freedom that I had uh, to just do what I wanted, you know, because the life that I had designed for myself was very much, I traveled where I wanted, I hung out with who I wanted, you know, I did what I wanted during the day. There was a tremendous amount of freedom to my life. And that was very important to me. And when, when my son was born, a couple things shifted. Number one, I felt a, I felt an ease with having more limitations in my life and finding freedom in those limitations. So my routines changed a little bit. Um, but I've, I've invited my son into those things, you know, like my morning routines, my son comes and stretches with me most mornings, you know, like this morning I'm doing stretches in the living room and I, I created like a little stretching song. So he come and does the stretching, you know, with me and he'll participate while I, you know, sing the stretching song and then he'll, you know, go do his own thing and play with trains. Uh, he does breath work with me sometimes now, he doesn't actually go through the whole breath work process, but he'll sit with me and he knows what it means and he'll he'll be a part of that. And so I think for me, it was really what shifted was the intensity of the importance of operating from my values and operating from who I want to be and how I want to impact people. Like that became very, very important that I really wanted to live every single day from a very, very aligned place. And that became incredibly important because I saw my son, as my son has gotten older and older, emulating everything that I do, truly, you know? And he's, he's watching, he's a hawk, man. He's just a hawk. And so, you know, I think that shifted because before it was like, yeah, if I let something slide, Nobody's really watching, you know, if I'm like, ah, if I, you know, don't take care of my health, it doesn't really matter. You know, like that kind of attitude was still, still present in my life. And when my son was born, it's like, oh no, like I, now I have a different why behind the work that I do, behind the routines, behind the rituals, behind the discipline, behind the desire to build something meaningful, like there is a different sense of why behind all of that. Um, there's a lot different of other choice, things. But I think you make a different choice now. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I make a different choice. And and so, you know, I think it's led me on some pretty cool adventures. Uh, like you and I chatted. I mean, part of, I was turning 40. I turned 40 in November and I came out to Scotland and went to the Isle of Skye and went and visited the, you know, town where my grandfather was born and my great-grandparents lived and, and spent time sort of connecting with my heritage and my lineage and my roots and trying to bring a sense of that into my son's life, you know, and, and carry that forward into, into his life and also bringing him into who I am, you know, inviting him into the, the stuff that matters to me and he can pick and choose what's relevant to him. Right. But like, you know, he's three and we're going to go camping this year. I'm taking him uh, to Maine and we're going to go camping. And, mm. you know, I've got all the gear and stuff like that. And, you know, I'm sure parts of it will be a shit show. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure parts of it are going to be challenging where he's just going to be like, you know, I'm taking a three-year-old out in the wilderness. But, um, you know, it's like inviting him into my world and what, what matters to me and what's important to me and letting him take the pieces that are important. So lots has changed. Lots has changed. That's amazing, man. And yet to, to reflect back that that's an incredible story. And I'd love, love hearing how that has allowed you to liberate yourself a little bit. Like you said, you know, when you're kind of making some excuses around things, but this, this dial up of discipline in your life came from this, this higher purpose. Like you, you have a higher purpose mm. now you're, you're, supporting a young human to move through life and learn things and if you're not integrous and authentic then they're gonna pick that up they are sponges i've, I've got a six a three and a one-year-old it's <laughs> intense like they are watching and it's this this discipline that, that we need to have i hear a lot of men you know 
sometimes mentioning how they don't have time now to do things. I'm like, well, what? <laughs> like time is everywhere. Yeah. You can make time for yourself, man. Like if you want to do something for you, then you make it happen. But you have to make the choice to make the time. You can't blame a three-year-old for, for taking up your time. You're the adult. So yeah, yeah, man, I really, really yeah, appreciate taking it. That's a big, that's a really big piece. I, I think the other thing that I would just say real quick, and then we'll have to probably jump off. But the other thing is that it, it forced me to have a deeper level of reconciliation with my own father. Mm-hmm. You know, having, having my own son really caused me to take a much more, serious look at my relationship with my father and reconcile things that were outstanding um that hadn't been dealt with or addressed that i that i thought were like good you know that i thought i'd let go of and so mm-hmm. so that that was also a beautiful piece that's brought a lot of um yeah a lot of peace into my life beautiful 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 thing to 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 end on and but before we go do you do you have anything because we spoke about um your briefly and we'll come back and have another chat about this, but your porn detox program. And I'm, I'm a huge advocate for that. So do you want to say anything about some of the programs and things that you've got coming up and maybe talk about your book as well? Yeah, I mean, definitely check out the book. Um, we'll have publishing rights happening in the UK and Australia soon. Uh, you can get it from Sounds True. Um, that's the publishing house right now out of the States. You can get it from them. The porn detox is a great, program we've had a ton of guys go through it there's two main programs that i have one is the shadow work course and there's a couple thousand people have gone through that and they really really love it um it's a deep dive into your shadow how your shadow shows up how you (laughs) self-sabotage in life um so that's a good one and then the porn detox really goes through the method that i implemented to actually quit pornography to quit watching porn because uh, I really had a problem with it. And I go deep into a couple of things that I haven't seen any other porn program talk about. I go deep into attachment and how our attachment actually um, plays into pornography because we, we end up creating a pseudo attachment to porn instead of a relationship. Uh, and And porn can turn into a primary attachment for a lot of us as men where we sacrifice parts of our relationships to maintain the relationship with pornography. Uh, so it's a, it's a great course and, um, it's helped guys get a lot of incredible results. Uh, so I would definitely just say, go check it out. Mantalks.com. You can find everything there. Yeah. Thank you so much, man. Thank you so much for coming on today. It's been great to talk to you, Connor. Likewise.